I'm a storyteller. I go all over the place helping people tell their stories. It's the best job, but sometimes it can be kind of hard because, well, it's not easy to hear everyone's story. For every joy, every laugh, there's also a lot of grief and struggle in this life. And as I like to say, you can't tell a good story without being a little bit vulnerable. Last year, I was contracted by the Georgia Council on Developmental Disabilities to travel the state, collecting stories about people with developmental disabilities for advocacy purposes. This podcast was inspired by that project. It was an amazing year as we met so many different people, folks of all kinds of different race, class, gender, religion, sexual orientation, their kinds of disability, rural, and urban. Somewhere in that first deep, hot, sweaty summer, I set off to go on what was around the 40th of what was eventually 75 interviews. As I opened my front door, the biggest bird of prey I have ever seen up close took off and flew across my yard. Clasped in its talons was a small animal, a mouse, a vole, I don't know. All I could see were its tiny legs flailing as the bird flapped its wings once, twice, and soared through my field of vision and out of sight. As a storyteller, you sort of see metaphors in everything. It can be exhausting to your friends and family, like, no, Shannon, sometimes a flight delay is just a flight delay. Stop overthinking it. That vivid image has stuck with me throughout the rest of this project. I keep coming back to it over and over with many of the stories I tell. Welcome to Hidden Voices, where we are uncovering the stories of Georgia's residents with developmental disabilities. I'm your host, Shannon M. Turner. Even though the stories you'll hear in Hidden Voices are not the kind of stories you may already know about or hear regularly, There are approximately 4.6 million individuals with developmental disabilities in the U.S. Of our 10.5 million citizens in Georgia, there are over 600,000 individuals with developmental disabilities. We're going to meet incredible people as we learn about some of the major trends that people with DD in Georgia face today. We'll discuss issues such as employment, housing, transportation, transitioning out of high school, assistive technology, service animals, and legislation that anyone can and should pay attention to. A waiver is actually waiving a person's funding not to be in an institution. That means my son, who has autism, the first placement is in an institution. He's got a job at Zaxby's. He can ride the bus from Cobb County into Atlanta to see me, this amazing person. The funding first goes for institutional settings still today. This waiver allows states to write policy and programs that would waive the institutional placement. And this mama's heart and this advocate's heart, that that needs to be turned upside down. And I'm not going to stop until the waiver is that you're waiving going into the community. That's Stacey Ramirez. We'll hear more from her in a bit. 
She's just introduced us to one of the things that's important for us to talk about right up front, which is language. Language can be so powerful in how it frames up our thinking about things. Like how the Medicaid waiver being called a waiver already puts you in the mode of thinking of it as an alternative to what would be normal. Language has a lot of power. I'm not talking about the obvious basics, things that have become slurs like the R word. I think we can get that out of the way pretty quickly. But only just last year, the state of Georgia replaced its official language of mental retardation and mentally retarded with intellectual disability. That was just last year, folks. There's also the important use of person-first language. So rather than saying she's disabled, you would say she's a person with a disability. That way you're putting the person first, not letting them be defined by these qualifiers. Along with the evolution of person-first language, there exists a division within the disability community of people who include their disability as part of their identity and would choose not to use people-first language for themselves. Language is constantly changing, and evolutionary language is especially true with this field. So what is the legal definition of developmental disability? Developmental disability, or DD, is a disability that manifests before the age of 22. Generally, it's something that affects how the person interacts with the world in terms of their learning, self-care, or mobility. It can impact their capacity for self-direction. And it's important to note that all developmental disabilities are not intellectual disabilities, although that's a big part of this field. A legal definition is, by its nature, something that varies from state to state and can have conflicts between state and federal definitions. In some places, the ages of onset for DD is 18. What are some examples? You may immediately recognize Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, and autism, but developmental disability also includes a person who became paralyzed at the age of 16 from an accident. Then there's this alphabet soup of service providers out there, DBHDD, ARC, VR. Honestly, I don't know how people keep up with it all. Today, there are thousands of people who are still waiting for services, have been for years. There's a long-term waiting list and a short-term list. The Medicaid waiver, which is the thing we will refer to over and over again, is often the hinge that people hang everything else on. It can mean having the supports necessary to live your best life as a person with a disability. There are different types, and surprise, surprise, they are also alphabet soup. There's the COMP, NOW, ICWP, and they all have to do with whether the person needs comprehensive services to get out and be integrated into the community or just needs some help to live independently. As we'll hear, these waivers have become like a political and budgetary football. When you think about that idea of living your best life, like Oprah would want you to, think about Oprah saying, you get a waiver and you get a waiver. The thing is, not everyone thinks everyone should get a waiver. Or at least, they don't want to prioritize our state's spending this way. So how do we get from that image of the Stark Institution or the separate special education classroom to where we are today? What I love about the story of the Americans with Disabilities Act itself is people with disabilities rose up. They had their civil rights movement just like African Americans, just like women, just like LBGTQ communities. It's often not heard of, but it's a story that needs to be told because it's an extraordinary story. And it caps with people getting out of their wheelchairs and crawling up the stairs to the United States Capitol to talk to their 
congressional leaders saying, you have to include us too. These stairs are a perfect example of how we get excluded. Tally Wells is the executive director of the Georgia Appleseed Center for Law and Justice. Previously, Tally worked for Atlanta Legal Aid for 17 years. That's the organization that brought the Olmstead case forward, the landmark case, which we'll learn about later. Tally spent his time working with the committee that planned the implementation of the decision and ultimately was an influencer in subsequent state settlements and litigation. Stacy Ramirez is the state director of ARC Georgia. She served on Olmstead planning committees for many years after the major decision which changed how the nation looks at disability. She's also the mother of a son with autism. Because of these experiences, she calls herself an inclusionista because she's become a huge advocate for full community inclusion. Stacy is a person who cares deeply about individuals with DD. With fire and high expectations, she has been on the front lines in Georgia. Before we get to Stacy and Tally and the Olmstead case, though, there's another landmark court case regarding disability with which you're probably already familiar, the ADA. The Americans with Disabilities Act prohibits discrimination against people with disabilities in employment, transportation, public accommodations, communications, and governmental activities. It was signed into law on July 26, 1990 by the first President Bush. A lot of people know about the ADA and think it was the end-all be-all for court cases related to disability. And it did move things forward, yet there were a lot of loopholes. And as we'll learn soon enough, things didn't change right away. We, as a country, discriminated against people with disabilities by putting them into institutions, which isolates them from the rest of the community. And so that became the basis for the Olmstead case. One other thing about the ADA that everyone knows, but it's important to really think through, is that what the ADA in essence says is that in order to ensure that people with disabilities are included just like everyone else, a reasonable accommodation may need to be provided in order to ensure that they can be included. So if a person uses a wheelchair, you need to have a ramp so the person can get in the room. If a person's blind, there needs to be ways that they are included in whatever communications, written materials are happening. And that inclusion is not about giving more stuff to people with disabilities. It's about bringing them into the room just like everyone else. It's my pleasure now to introduce you to Lois Curtis. She lives with her family in an apartment in the Atlanta area. And most days, she goes to hang out with Pertula, her staff member, who helps Lois get out into the community. I go, I go to the house in the morning time I leave my black man. I throw that have bologna, chips, and gauge right. And we go out to eat. We go to the movies, do business, rock levels, and draw. Most of the time at the program, I see the people saying, Lois is a kind of rock star in the disability community. I mean, she has total name recognition. Why? Well, because Lois's life wasn't always like it is now. She was part of that landmark Supreme Court case that helped us get from the ADA to where we are today. Lois used to live in an institution, and she was pretty unhappy there. Lois was this extraordinary woman who was caged. She was put in an institution, and the reason she was put in that institution was because she had a disability. And it was segregation because everybody in that institution has a disability. This place where they literally would lock the front door 
and then you would go through, they'd lock the second door, you'd go into a lobby, and then there would be a third door. Folks would be locked in where they had very small rooms that they shared with another person and very little to do during the day. And Lois Curtis would call Sue Jamison, who was the attorney at Atlanta Legal Aid, and she'd say, get me out of here. Get me out of here. And so Sue thought that was a pretty clear request for legal advice. And there had been this extraordinary case in the Third Circuit in Pennsylvania by a guy named Steve Gold on behalf of a woman who was in a nursing home who wanted to live with her children. And she said, the money that the state is paying for me to live in this nursing home, it should just use it so that I can continue to live in my own home. It's actually not going to cost more money. That would be a reasonable accommodation. And they brought that in the district court in Pennsylvania, and then it went up to the appellate court, and they won. Sue, being the great lawyer that she is, and Charlie Bliss and Steve Cayley and the other folks at Legal Aid said, that's what Lois needs. So they essentially built a case around Lois using that same theory. Olmstead, or Olmstead v. LC, LC for Lois Curtis, is the name of the most important civil rights decision for people with disabilities in our country's history. And Georgia is where it all got started. In 1999, building on the precedence of the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Supreme Court held that people with disabilities have a qualified right to receive state-funded supports and services in the community rather than institutions. I want to take a step back here to talk about another landmark case for civil rights that happened long before Olmstead and even the ADA, Brown v. Board of Education, a landmark Supreme Court case in which the court declared state laws establishing separate public schools for black and white students to be unconstitutional. Brown effectively overturned the Plessy v. Ferguson decision of 1896, which allowed state-sponsored segregation insofar as it applied to public education. The upshot of Brown? Separate is not equal. What we also learned over time with Brown v. Board was that change doesn't happen overnight. Even though the court made its ruling, students had to show up at schools all across the South facing down people who are the face of institutions to fight for what had already been established as their rights. There were years, decades even, when people had to go to the mat fighting for the rights the court had already established were theirs. And they had to do this over and over again. When people are part of an institution, a system, sometimes feeding that system, keeping it the same, is all they can see. In the case of the ADA and Olmstead, same thing. The state of Georgia, again, ground zero for where all this got started, languished for about a decade, doing very little to help people with disabilities in any new or different way until there was this big settlement 10 years later that nearly happened. Before we get to that story, though, There was a series of articles called Hidden Shame by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution in 2007. It revealed ongoing disasters in mental health hospitals and prisons, which is where a lot of people with mental illness and disabilities were being sent. This was an outstanding piece of journalism that brought a lot of things to light. As a result, there was a lengthy investigation of over 100 deaths of people institutionalized, including children. Then a few years after that, Now we find ourselves at that settlement with the state of Georgia. It's 2009. This settlement would have undone it all, like wiped the slate clean and left everyone high and dry. Because the settlement would have allowed Georgia to provide a payout to the federal government and then close the books, no real mandate to deinstitutionalize would have been necessary. 
This was one of those watershed moments where some true heroes came forward and saved the day. A woman, a non-lawyer, wrote a letter to the judge who was presiding over the settlement and pled with him not to do it, explaining what terrible repercussions would occur. And pay attention, because this never happens, folks. He took a step back and said, no, we're not going forward with this agreement, which led the way to a 2010 court case that hammered out the details for implementing Olmstead in a truly meaningful way of bringing people out of institutions and helping to serve them in the community. The Justice Department entered into a settlement with Georgia, and it was very weak. And it was really about putting a giant Band-Aid on the institutions and not enabling people to have successful lives in the community and building that infrastructure. The advocacy community, the disability community, was so deflated, so concerned. But fortunately, there was a group of mental health advocates who happened to be gathering at the Carter Center, which First Lady Rosalind Carter was has always been a huge advocate for people with mental illness and has these gatherings. And so there was a group gathered together and a woman named Cynthia Wainscott, who is a Republican who had been on a group of mental health advocates. She got them together and wrote a letter to this judge and said, judge, you cannot have this settlement go forward. Now, we lawyers knew that there were two parties to this litigation, the Justice Department and Georgia. They had entered an agreement Most of the time, when you have two parties, they're the only ones in the lawsuit, the judge is just going to go along with whatever they decide. But Cynthia wrote this letter to the judge. The judge read it. The judge took it very seriously, ultimately called for a hearing, and that's when we at Legal Aid got back involved and others and the Georgia Advocacy Office and all of the mental health advocates. But the mental health community really rose up and convinced the judge not to authorize the settlement agreement. So... Here we are today, 20 years following the passage of the Olmstead Act, nearly 30 years after the ADA, and we're still working to generate enough political will to fully fund the waivers that will allow all Georgia residents access to the supportive services they need to live fully actualized lives. There are people who are waiting for services, most of whom have been waiting for years. There are even people still waiting for a place to live outside of institutions and nursing homes. There's inequity built into our system all along the way. Inequity that relates to race, class, education, rural versus urban. All the same things people without disabilities struggle with that just get amplified and more complex when you add trying to access the supported services needed when you have a disability. There are still over 200 people with developmental disabilities in an institution. So there's still so much work to do. And then we've already said there's this thing called a waiver so that you can live a life, a full life in the community. There's 6,000 people on that waiting list. But there is light. There is light. I sit at the table with, it's called DBHDD, all these acronyms we use, the Division of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities. And I was just at a retreat about supported employment, which is, as you can tell, I don't have words for how excited I am about we're supporting people with developmental disabilities to achieve a life well-lived because they are, are, you know, working citizens in, in their community. So there's still a lot to be done. And I think it would be devastating to take away federal oversight. I think that we're not there yet with 200 still in an institution to to come to the community. 
We need the federal oversight, but the direction of specifically developmental disability services, I have great hope that we are going in the direction that all will mean all, and there will be nothing about us without us, and we will be able to to better build this beloved community where it's just this rainbow of diversity in every way. Pay attention to Stacy's excitement about supported employment because that is definitely a huge factor in the lives of people with DD. We'll get back to that in a future episode. Access to the community as provided through services like Medicaid waivers is really not something that should be seen as a privilege, only available to a certain few. It should be readily available to anyone and everyone. This is why we need people like Stacey Ramirez. And and the reason is, just to put it in very simple terms, is the Americans with Disabilities Act is about when the state does something, it has to include everybody. But if the state is doing nothing, it can basically include everyone with its nothingness. So if the state's not providing services to various folks with disabilities who live in the community, the ADA doesn't necessarily give you a right to get something when the state's only providing nothing. And so that's where there has to be a hand in glove. Lawyers can't do it all. There has to be those people who are really talking to policymakers, legislators, people with disabilities who are coming. And that's happened in Georgia. It needs to happen again. It hasn't happened for a while, but there was this whole movement called Unlock the Waiting List where advocates, people with disabilities, and moms, moms can do so much. I would hear that the legislators were so annoyed and tired of hearing from all these moms, but those moms got it done, and they got a lot of waivers at that time. And so Olmstead can do so much, but we also have to have that legislative advocacy. At this point, though, I think it's important to make sure we're clear about the fact that Olmstead was a case that covered both people with disabilities and people with mental health issues. It ultimately treated these different populations differently. Those differences have had rippling effects over the last decade. I have to say that we were at a high point at the beginning of the settlement, and we're at a much lower point. We're basically back to where we were before the Unlock the Waiting List. And I think that that's one of the realities is this sort of push-pull. So if you focus on adult mental health like we did, then you leave out children's mental health. If you focus on mental health, you leave out developmental disabilities. When they were doing the Unlock the Waiting List, they were leaving folks out with mental illness. And it wasn't on purpose. It's just that we're constantly sort of playing a -a whack-a-mole game where we're trying to get the biggest problem taken care of. Meanwhile, the problem that wasn't as much of a problem starts to grow again. So remember at the top of the episode, I told you about that summer morning when I was getting ready to leave for the interview? I opened my front door and this huge bird of prey flew across my front yard with a tiny animal in its talons. Each time I go on one of these interviews, I receive briefing documents. For that day, there was a note, a subtle flag at the end. The young woman I was about to visit had been the recent victim of a violent crime. The mom wasn't sure if the girl would choose to bring it up as we talked, but encouraged us to steer away from it if so. Thing is, at that point, It was about the second or third time I'd gotten that kind of note in my files, a warning that someone I was going to interview had been the victim of a crime. Later that day, when the young woman was out in her yard with the photographer, I sat on the porch with her mom. I know you don't want me to ask her about what happened, but I just wondered if you wanted a chance to talk about it. She shared a deeply sad story about how her daughter had been victimized by a stranger, and now they were 
on top of everything else that is complicated about their lives, locked into a cycle of therapy sessions and a court case, along with applying to get on the wait list for a Medicaid waiver and trying to get her connected with employment services. After she finished telling me the story, we sat there quietly looking out across the yard at her daughter lying in her hammock. I thought about the vulture and the vole. The vulture isn't just the predator that would find and brutalize a young woman with a disability in her most vulnerable moment. Having a disability in this society can sometimes feel like being in the grip of something so much larger than you. A system that sometimes works and sometimes is broken or inadequate. It's complex, complicated, labyrinthine. You have to have incredible tenacity to navigate it the mountains of paperwork, and hours of duplicative appointments. And it's all growing out of a history that tries to keep people with disabilities out of the way, silent, invisible. I almost hesitate to tell you that story because the last thing I want to do is to leave you with the impression that people with disabilities are victims or sitting around just waiting to be taken care of. That's not what this journey is about. You're going to find that almost all of these stories are about the opposite, in fact. They're about people meeting their lives where they're at, defining it on their own terms, moving forward. This is just reality. There's this Buddhist saying, may I be happy, healthy, safe, and free. May you be happy, healthy, safe, and free. May all beings everywhere be happy, healthy, safe, and free. What I've learned so far in this project is that people with developmental disabilities, their families, Caregivers, support staff just want that to be happy, healthy, safe, and free. And they want to be treated like we all want to be treated as individuals with our own song to sing. A real here. Break up to break up. I will do. You will love me. You will hate me. It was a game. I wanna hold on, get along, baby. Tune in next time when we'll meet John, Kylie, and Jake as we learn about how they're using assistive technology and service animals to increase their independence, communication, and just how they go about navigating the everyday world. Voices is sponsored by the Georgia Council on Developmental Disabilities. This podcast is part of a series of stories called The Storytelling Project, a collaboration between L'Arche Atlanta and GCDD. You can find out more about GCDD's advocacy at gcdd.org and about L'Arche Atlanta's community of people with and without disabilities at larchatlanta.org. That's L-A-R-C-H-E atlanta.org. Other strategic partners are Resurgence Impact Consulting and Story Muse, made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Shannon M. Turner. Irene Turner is our executive producer. Ina Garkusha is our producer. Dante Hodge and Cooper Skinner are our sound engineers. We are recording at Listen Up Audio in Atlanta, Georgia. Our outro today was an original composition by Lois Curtis, plaintiff in the landmark Olmstead case.